Hello everyone and welcome to Rolling Forward. I am your host Ben Baldieri and thank you for tuning in. Rolling Forward is dedicated to exploring topics related to mental health and sports and the interplay between the two. I'll be talking to high performers in various areas such as sport, entrepreneurship and business about their experiences with mental health and the struggles they have had and in doing so seeking to broaden the dialogue. Mental health is a huge issue which has historically not received the recognition it deserves so I'm looking to do my bit to change that. My guest today is Dr. Rob Kelly, PhD. Rob is a world-renowned addiction expert who believes in treating the problem, not the symptoms. He has worked for many years helping addicts and alcoholics to recover their lives from the disease of addiction. Based on his own experiences working with addicts and alcoholics over the last 20 years and combined with two PhDs in psychology and behavioral science and as a recovered alcoholic himself, he is a triple threat against the disease of addiction. Dr. Kelly's philosophy may seem unconventional and unorthodox, but they are based on extensive research and behavioral studies that he has conducted over the last 20 years. He pulls the disease out of his clients and empowers them to fight the disease of addiction head on. In this conversation, we dig into Rob's own experience with alcoholism and the profound impact it had on his life, leading from Oxford University to a park bench in Manchester, England, shivering in the cold in a near-death experience. We explore the habits and routines that Rob has built into his own life to ensure that he stays on the road to recovery and his ideas around how the stories we tell ourselves and how much we buy into those stories will ultimately decide the direction of our life. This conversation was so much fun and we covered topics as diverse as Freemasonry, recording with Elton John at Abbey Road Studios and struggling with imposter syndrome. It was an absolute pleasure to have Dr. Kelly on, and I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Right. Good evening, good morning, Dr. Rob. Thank you very much indeed for doing this. My pleasure, absolutely. Good to meet you, Ben. Yes, indeed. I've been looking forward to this. We've managed to finally make it happen after a few cancellations. Yeah, <laughs> we got here eventually. Yeah. So, first question, in the same vein as what we were talking about just beforehand, what is wrong, in your opinion, with the current system of treating mental health? Treating mental health. There's a couple of, depression. Yeah, there's a couple of things wrong as far as I'm concerned. First of all, it's still it's still treated as a dirty subject. <clears throat> it's still something you want to try and treat, you know, undercover uh, and in secret. And the problem is with that is if you're suffering from mental health, the last thing you want to be doing is shut away in a corner somewhere. Because what happens is you start questioning your sanity. So... You know, is there something wrong? Well, there is, apart from what I'm suffering from. Now nobody wants to talk about it. So what I'm suffering from, is it real or is it not real? And until we bring it out into the open, and we're getting there. I mean, we go back to, to the AIDS syndrome and, 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 and other things like that. Even being gay in the UK, I mean, 20, 30 years ago, it was really difficult. I think we're there now with mental health. I think in 10 or 20 years, we're going to be speaking open about it. And the only way to get a, a head start with this is to realize that everybody has some sort of addiction and everybody suffers from some sort of mental defect. And let me explain real quickly why. If we got locked up for our thoughts, and I'm talking to guys more than girls, if we got locked up for our thoughts on a daily basis, all of us will be doing time inside. Is that a mental defect? I don't know. Ask yourself that. But until we bring it all out in the open, it's still going to be hard to treat because we're not looking at the causes and conditions. We're looking at the effect it has 
on the community. It's like little Johnny, as a, you know, he's, he's committed suicide, or he's, he's been threatened to commit suicide, he's in and out of treatment, he's in and out of psych wards, you know, he has an effect on our community. So we're going to kind of buff him away to one side and just let, in England, let the council sort it out. And now it's jails because all the uh, hospitals have closed down, mental health hospitals. And it, it, it kills more people, mental health, than anything else in the world. And of course, there's lots of branches of that mental health from heavy depression. What we used to call clinical depression is now bipolar with the little tweaks. But it's the same thing. Bringing a new name into it so people would get more comfortable was a great idea. So I've heard more people in the last 10 years, so I've got bipolar and not been embarrassed where in the old days, nobody would say, hey, I'm clinically depressed because that was a heavy, it's like a jail sentence. It was a heavy tag to put around you and you was classified as don't go near. Yeah, and I agree 100%. I mean, if you come out to someone and say that oh, I've been struggling with depression, um, more often than not, that's going to be met with with a degree of fear to a certain extent, because I mean, if you don't have any personal experience of it, then you're not, you don't know how to engage because I think the education around depression, anxiety, bipolar, all of these, this spectrum of mental health disorders just doesn't yet exist in the capacity that it needs to such that even if you don't have any experience, you still have the tools available to engage with someone who does have that experience or is experiencing it at that time. For sure. And, and also as well, we, we, we're kind of given tags. Uh, well, have you, have you invited uh, Julie around to the party? No, she's a Debbie Downer. Yeah. What does that mean? You know, it means she's depressed. She's looking on the gloomy side and there's a high risk of suicide. But we tag them because it's comfortable with us. <clears throat> I once got asked if depression was contagious. <clears throat> Four or five people in the room started to laugh. <clears throat> and I went, well, it is. Because if you stick five people in the same room, one of them is depressed, there's a couple of things going to happen. She's going to come out of it and join the rest, or the four are going to join her, and there's a good chance the four are going to join her. <clears throat> because the brain itself is looking for anything to self-sabotage in the slightest possible way to the normal person, to a 90% chance with the alcoholic or addict, or addictive brain, as we like to call it. So you will go there, especially if you've had any, any success in your life. Mm-hmm. When you say self-sabotage, what, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that there's like a, a neural tendency, like an evolutionary tendency to look for that? look for that drag down as it were yes exactly and now uh, uh, stuff like that neural path of sabotaging is a hereditary so let's talk about my game which is alcoholism um it will be found in, in your family i mean you go back generations over there now the only problem with, with going back generations with alcoholism is it goes from dad's an alcoholic to grandfather liked to drink so even then he wasn't talking about alcoholism he liked to drink which means he was an alcoholic he drank too much alcohol you know, so what happens is I'm born as an alcoholic. I'm born with the addictive brain. The addictive brain always has self-sabotaging neural pathways. And what happens with the alcoholic addictive brain is when we get a series of success, we self-sabotage because we don't think we're worthy. So we have a saying in this company, and that is, I will never be blonde enough, tall enough, rich enough, or thin enough. That's just the way it is. It's never going to happen. You know, and I've spoke to people and I've done myself, once I get 100 grand in the bank, once I get 500 grand in the bank, once I get a million dollars, it never stops until we go because that self-sabotaging brain wants to kill me and make it look like an accident. And that's the bottom line is we have to deal with that. We have to deal with it. Now, I've spoken to some of the most famous, some of the best road sweepers, some of the best cab drivers, 
and everybody suffers for the same thing, and that's lack of confidence. That's a self-sabotaging brain. That stuff can kill you left untreated. Now, one of the problems that people like me and other people, maybe like you, Ben, as well, is when's the last time somebody sat down and went, hey, Ben, you are amazing at what you do? Probably years. I know with me it's been years. Why? Because they think we know. Because we think we're at the top of our game. We should know that. Not necessarily. You know, I question myself every single day because the only reason and the only way you're going to know you're any good at anything is when somebody keeps telling you. Because you can't tell yourself. You don't, you don't believe yourself. I don't believe in my brain for one second. Like this interview, my TV stuff, I've never read my book. I don't want to get into stuff like that because I start believing that stuff and start believing that I'm kind of a little bit of a celebrity. I remember once doing a, a, a thing at Paramount Studios in, in California and I came out of the studio and I was hyped up and I was like, they, they treat me like royalty. And I come off and I shouted that somebody wears my limousine. And the next thing I know, my wife grabbed me by the scruff of the neck against the thing and she said, let's get a few things straight. First of all, it's not your limousine. Secondly, it's a town car. They're, they're, they're grateful. They give you a town car to take you to the airport. Don't you ever say, where's my limousine again? And speaking down to people. And that was a prime example where my head can go. And that's self-sabotaging because I'll crash from that yeah. very, very easily. So I, I have to stay. And everybody with, with mental health, this is what I call the fourth dimension. That This is what I'm like untreated. Whether that, now, I take medication for, for depression. I don't mind telling people that, you know, but uh, it keeps me on an even keel. But it needs to be daily watched. That's what I think anyway. This is my mental health, something I came up with. I was speaking in California somewhere. And while I'm talking, this came to my head. And I don't know where these crazy thoughts come from. But this here, this is me untreated as a mental health addict alcoholic. This is the guy that's going to sleep with your girlfriend, steal your car, uh, try and get your mortgage in my name so I can have your hand, and all this crazy stuff. And this guy wakes me up every morning. This is the real me. And this is the work I have to do. So this is my morning work, my calling other sponsors, my calling sick people, compliment people, and acting a good Samaritan. And I walk out the house like this. This guy, Ben, is going to have a great day. He's yeah. going to be kind to people. He's going to influence people. Is going to inspire people. But you know when he goes to bed, have a guest who wakes him up the next morning. It's this guy. And unless I do the work on a daily basis, I can go downhill real quick. That's right. Yeah, again, I agree 100%. I've found that if, if I have something that I'm able to focus on, if I'm putting myself in a position where I'm not, where I'm able to help people and know that I am, as you say, like know that I'm making a positive contribution, know that the work that I am doing is valued in some way. And then that gives me something outside of myself to focus on such that the guy that you wake up as, like the initial one, is not so much kind of drowned out, but more I spend less time in my own head with those thoughts, with those behaviors, with those self-sabotaging tendencies that come through in like, I mean, what's the, the Descartes quote like, all of man's problems stem from an inability to sit in a quiet room by himself. Yes. Being in the quiet room is when all of those things come out. And it's not that you, again, this may be a projection on my part, but it's not that I'm trying to avoid those things. It's that I know that if I'm able to do things that are outside of myself and give back, then I can keep those other things in check. The work keeps those things in check. That, that's why I need a daily routine. That's why I need a routine, routine, routine. 
Because once I start romancing, there's the word, romancing the self-sabotaging idea, and that can be anything <clears throat> from not shaving to uh, going to take drugs or, or going to a liquor store. So here's the key for me. How, how do we get away from that? Self-dialogue. Self-dialogue is very important. What we, what we listen to ourselves, our body, and what we listen to are for the people. I will not be surrounded by people that want to put me down or talk down to me. I don't, I don't associate with them, guys. And this is why this, again, came to me. Um, it's actually happened, but I, I put it together to, to tell people is we got a phone call once to, to the office, and uh, John, John, someone said John's dad's just died in a car accident. So uh, I called him and I said, Hey, John, I've no idea why they called the office. I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, your father's died, and man, that guy broke down. He had to pull over to the side of the road. He was shaking. I said, are you okay? He said, my body's shaking, Dr. Kelly. I don't know what to do. And God, I felt so sorry for him. So, you know, we, we called we called somebody, and we got, you know, he was on the way, and I put the phone down, and I'd come away, and my sister come running in, and she had a white face. I said, what's going on? She said, we have the wrong John. It's John T, not John S. I'm like, oh, my God. So I said, you call Tom G. I'm going to call John S back. So I called him back. Anyway, we calmed him down. But what I took away from that was his body went into all sorts of convulsions and he had no control over that from words I told him on the end of a phone. So that tells me that dialogue in, in general can change the way we feel. When we say thank you to somebody, dopamine starts flying around in the brain. It's a well-known fact. So it actually makes me feel good to say thank you. And when people compliment me, so self-dialogue is what I do, is what I'm careful of. So if I drop a pen on the floor, I'm not a stupid idiot. I've just dropped a pen on the floor, but my tendency is to, oh, what an idiot, you know. No, I can't do that today because that is the start of my relapse. Isn't that crazy? Because my alcoholism will never come to me on a Monday and go, hey, Rob, let's have a drink today. It's a week or a month before when I start self-sabotaging. What an idiot, drop that on the floor. You see Johnny over there, he's getting on my nerves. She is a pain in the backside. She is because I can't... That's self-sabotage, and that will take me down quicker than anything else in the world. It's not the alcohol that kills me. It's complacency and self-sabotage. Thank you. Uh, baby steps that, as you said, the, the tendency to kind of to, to fall back into those negative patterns, to fall back into those negative routines. But you mentioned your, um, you mentioned that your routine is one of the things that is that keeps you kind of, for lack of a better phrase, on the straight and narrow as it were. What does your daily routine look like? What are some of the things that you do, you absolutely have to do on a daily basis to maintain that? <clears throat> I get up in the morning, my, my routine, well, first of all, my wife runs my day, you know. I used to have an assistant and all people around me and, uh, you know, people let you down. So my wife said one day, I want to I wanna do your day for you. So I have no idea what, the, the, I have no idea what I'm doing tomorrow. I just know I have a basis of this, what I have to do. And what I do, I get up in the morning and I, I say a few prayers to higher power, to supreme being, the universe, God, whatever you wish to choose. I say a few prayers in the morning and then I brush my teeth, I get showered straight away. I all shave and then I get showered and I come out and I'm ready for the day. I stand in front of the mirror and I tell myself, I love you 10 times. And then I say it out loud, it's been, today's going to be a great day. Now my brain is already primed for that day. So when it's a great day, at the end of the day, I'm not going to go, wow, that was amazing. It's like, it was I told, I told myself that so and then I have to have set things during the day that happen so my 10 o'clock patient my 11 o'clock patient I have lunch at 12 o'clock at 2 o'clock I do an online meeting 4 o'clock I have the gym and so on and so forth and at night time I sit down and review the day where have I been selfish self-seeking you know self-sabotaging what have I done today for other people that they know 
And what did I do for other people that they don't know that I did? And that keeps them this straight and narrow. And for instance, I used to go to a meeting at 7 a.m. I used to run a men's meeting in Dallas, Texas. And I noticed one day, it was going through the rainy season, I noticed a pretty large, overweight woman who couldn't really take the stairs. She used to come out, and the lift was on the outside, so you had to stand in the elements while you're waiting for the elevator. And I used to get there 10 minutes before her, and I used to park near the elevator. And when I used to see a park, I used to run up to there, but I used to press it. So that every time she'd walk up and press the button, the doors would open automatically so she didn't have to wait in the rain. I did that for a year. She had no idea I was doing that. But I knew I was giving back to society, and that's the daily stuff that I need to do because otherwise that self-sabotaging brain goes back to my comfort blanket, and that's I'm not going to be good enough. I'm never going to fit in and all that great stuff. Yeah, all that. All that negative self-talk. So when you're when you're stood in front of the mirror and you're telling yourself it's going to be a great day, is that so you're, you're like you're setting your intention, as it were. Like you, you're priming your brain. You're choosing the state that you're going to interact with the rest of your day with. Yeah, and and that's the way it has to be for me. You know, I, I truly believe if you tell your brain something, it's going to happen. We can neuroplasticity was was uh, was uh, discovered ten years ago in the medical field, even though we've been doing it for twenty something years. And that is, we can change the brain to anything you want to change it to, and you can become anything you want to become. So. Let's look at uh, let's look at quantum physics for a second, which has a huge part in the brain. Mm-hmm. So let's take a basketball court. So quantum physics tells us, and it's a science, and it's a fact, which is a tried and tested uh, stuff that we do. Uh, that that if that's true. So quantum physics tells me that I can be, I don't know, up to twenty five places at one time on that basketball court. Now here's the crazy, simple, smart way. So. If I can be any any of them 25 places at one time, where would I choose to be in the ideal world? And that would be over near the goal, so I could just pop it in the net and be the hero. How do I get to that position? Here we go. I walk over and I take that position. Simple. Mm -hmm. Now, what we do is we get complicated and we start worrying. We start thinking, that's not possible. I'm not good enough. And how do I do it? You walk over and you take that position. And that's been the story of my life for a few years. I don't interview. I don't ask permission. I'll walk over. I'm already there. What we do is some of the guys that are coming back from, you know, a little bit of fame and, and, and then they come back to nothing, is we take them to the Porsche dealerships and we get them to sit in the Porsches. We take them to the mansions. We get them to walk around the mansions and, and pretend they're buying it to, to the realtor, the estate agent. Because what happens is the brain gets primed for that stuff. So when it happens, it doesn't blow your mind. How many times have you heard someone go, oh, my God, I can't believe Oh, no. You need to preempt that mind by doing it before it happens. And once we can visualize it, walk over and take that position. It's as simple as that in anything in life. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's, that's our secret to, to success. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense to me. So this is t- tapping into that idea that you, you read stories of um, individuals who win the lottery, for example. Like they win jackpot. They get this huge amount of money that comes their way. And then two, three, four, five years down the line, they've got absolutely nothing left. And that's because they haven't got the value set that would be associated with managing that money effectively. So you're priming people's values, If again, like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're priming people's values and beliefs around their status in life in terms of the things that they're capable of doing, the things that they're capable of achieving, the things that they, the things that are already theirs, basically, the things they view as theirs to take. 
Exactly. And that, that's exactly what it is. And the, and the brain will actually take that in when it happens. But not only that, you know, if you're not prepared for something, you're going to blow it. 97 or 98%, I believe, this is a Google search many months ago, 97, 98% of people who, who win a, a great amount of money uh, on the lottery who are not already wealthy uh, all go broke, all have family problems, all have fights who never speak to anybody, all are back in that trailer park that they started on because <clears throat> the brain can't handle it. You know, you just, you, you don't have, you don't know your own value, so therefore you buy people, and that's a very dangerous thing to do when you're buying company and buying people, and, you know, you've got to know your, your own worth, and that comes down again to self-dialogue and people going, hey, Mark, you're doing a pretty good job, thank you. Mm. It's awesome. Yeah, it's buying people, surrounding yourself with psychophants and yes men is is a surefire way to to ensure your own downfall incredibly quickly. I mean, you as we mentioned before, like if you um, have five people in a room, one of them is depressed, chances are those are the four people going to be brought down. If you are the one person with money and you surround yourself with four people who are just going to make you feel good, so you, you share that wealth with them more often than not, you're going to come down to that level as well. And I've done both of them, you know. I, I've, <clears throat> I think what makes me so good at what I do is I've been there. When I tell people, you know, you don't want to do this, you don't want to do that, it's not from a high mountain, it's because I've done it. Yeah. You know, I, I surrounded myself with a lot of yes-men uh, in Dallas, I 12, 15 staff, and uh, as soon as anything happened, they all, they all fled. But the other thing I did as well was uh, if you came in in the morning in an office of 15 people in kind of a bad mood or not having a great day, I would send you on. Not allowed to work today because that attitude and that downer uh, will affect people. And we want to know what's wrong with you. So I think uh, we, we used to call it mental health days. I don't know whether I ever take talk off, but we used to call it mental health days. And then we had uh, Feel Good Friday where we'd come in with anything we want to wear, shorts, t-shirts, and I'd take everybody out Friday afternoon and, and really compliment people, and we get a little award and stuff that we used to have, and we give it to different staff members every week, and that really lifted morale. <clears throat> and that's what I do. I'm, I'm an influencer, and I will lift anybody's spirit to a different level so that they can perform at the best of their ability. And that's, you know, alcohol and drug have got very little to do with what I do. It's all, it's all mental health. It's all how the brain can work and how we can actually get around that and make sure that the positive things that you do have a bigger, reflect, a bigger effect on your life than the negative neural pathway thought pattern will ever have. Yeah. And that's the, that's the position that I'm in today. Mm-hmm. But this is, a, this is a position that you have not always been in. I mean, you, you mentioned before that part of the reason you've been so successful, part of the reason that you have this depth of understanding is because you have been to the other side. You've experienced the other side. Yeah, and I think without going there, Ben, it's very hard to it's very hard to weigh the both up. You yeah. know, I think um, a band called James in in the, just outside Manchester had a hit record. It's called Sit Down, and one of the lines out of it it says, "If I wouldn't seem so rich, as I could live with being poor." Uh, and and that's the other vice versa as well. It, is it's yeah. all the mental capacity, it's what you're exposed to, and and what you can be exposed to, but fear. Is, my, is our biggest enemy because fear will stop you uh, achieving all your dreams. It will knock them down straight away if you're not surrounded by the right people. I'm surrounded by people when I go, you know something, I want to build like this crazy empire and people going, well, it's about time. 
rather than people going, oh, I don't know. I signed a million-dollar uh, rental deal in Dallas, and people outside my clan thought I was insane. Are you cr- I mean, it was in the medical building in Highland Park. It was a very affluent part of the, the city. And I'm like, what's the worst thing can happen? What are they going to do? Take the office off me? Or get another office? Get another Take Christmas off me? I don't think so. I've been on the streets, boys. This is nothing. You know, and I think once you get rid of that fear, this, it's just the world opens up to a brand new place for you. Because there's nothing different from, from me to the guy sat earning $10 million a year at the top of a CEO company. Nothing, no different whatsoever. Education, I went to the best school in the world. Stature, no, as good as anybody else. Thought patterns, motivation, no, I can do that as well. The only difference is fear. He has little fear. I have a lot of fear about doing that. Because the higher up the ladder you get, don't everyone notice this, the higher up the ladder you get in business, the less you do. You know, you spend more time worrying as a junior management about how you're going to cope with things. And the CEO doesn't really do anything apart from oversee and play golf. I want some of that for $20 million a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, the, the delegation of responsibilities. I mean, the higher you get, the more people that you've got that you can delegate to, for sure. Uh, but like, so you mentioned that you, you went to, I mean, we were speaking beforehand, you've got two PhDs, one in behavioral science and then another PhD from, from Oxford University. But yes, there was a sandwich period in the middle. So look, you, you grew up in a council estate. You have yes. the, the beliefs associated with, um, growing up in a council estate and the, I mean, for, for, our non-UK listeners, council estates in the UK are similar to like the housing projects that you would get in the States, for example. Yes. The likelihood of making it out of that social circle is low, very yes, low yes. because of the individuals that you end up being surrounded with. Again, that five people you spend the most time with, the individuals that you spend time with, the opportunities that you're afforded and that sort of thing. How did you go from council estate and the mindset that's associated with that to Oxford University was because that's an immense amount of effort for anybody and an immense amount of confidence as well yeah um but what happened is um I I, I was thrown on stage at the age of nine with my with my aunt and uncle so I'm a musician by trade and by heart that's what I love to do um so I would be already getting confidence going out and playing uh at weekends and going back to school on Monday at the age of 10 11 12 and I did all through my teens. But when I was about 16, I applied for a bass player, session bass player at uh, a place called uh, Strawberry Studios, which is owned by a band called 10CC in Stockport, just outside Manchester. And they, they were making jingles for TV and, and, and for radio. And, and I got positioned there as, as uh, the session bass player. And it made me think, uh, if I could do that, what else could I do with a guitar strapped on me? And then I became very confident with that guitar. So I applied to Abbey Road. And uh, it took about seven auditions, but I finally got the position at Abbey Road as the Abbey Road bass player. And I'm like, the sky's the limit here. Now, I'm still drinking, by the way. I'm still drinking and using drugs. But it was in the early days when I could get away with it. So when, when, uh, when Elton John walks in and, and, you know, and he wants a bass player because his bass player's wasted somewhere, I'm not saying he was, I'm just saying that he needed one. And, and he chooses you, yeah. He chooses you over everyone else that's available. You start getting this, this sense of superiority. So I was earning $1,000 an hour back in 1980, 1979 maybe, which is probably about $10,000 an hour today. 
So I was paying, being paid extortion money, but I was very good. I lived with a, a bass guitar around my, around my head. Uh, even used to bathe with a bass guitar. It was crazy. But the money I got from that, I somebody said, like, well, what are you going to do? Go to Oxford? So I became a Freemason around that time, 17, 18. A friend got a friend, got me in. I don't know how. And what I saw in there was just people but they're no better than me, living large, as we say in Manchester, uh, for no reason. I'm thinking, well, what, why am I so different? So through that contact, and through that contact only, I was given an interview at Oxford for Green's College to become a medical doctor. Um, I got thrown out from that university after a year for being drunk. So they threw me into another university in Oxford for my PhD. But that was it. It was the confidence and the money that I earned, thinking, well, why not? You know, I still think today, how far can you push this? I pushed it a long way, by the way. But homelessness followed that. So that brings you back down again to I'm a piece of crap and, you know, I'm worthless and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it was just it was just looking at other people and 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 and, and going, well, why why can't I do that? And, and the reason is that you can't. And the other thing that, that was an aha moment for me is, especially with the alcohol, is I always thought the alcohol was ruining my life. And then one morning, uh, just before I came homeless, I, I was stood outside a liquor store at 6 a.m. The guy opens for newspapers at 6, but couldn't, he can't serve liquor till 10. But he always used to give me a bottle of vodka because I was, I was going into DTs. I'd be sweating outside the liquor store at like minus two, you know, and I'd be in a T-shirt and, and a pair of shorts sweating. But I walked in one morning and I said to him, hey, Jimmy, can I have the usual? And he put the bottle of vodka. And I don't know why this morning I did it, but... And I give him my 10 pounds and I grab the handle of the bottle and my whole beat, this was how I went. <sighs> and I was so relaxed and such in a great mood within three or four seconds. And I looked at the bottle and I thought to myself, I've not even opened the cap. And yet my whole body just changed. And that got me into neuroscience. And again, the confidence to go out and say, well, hang on a sec. Let's question everything here. Yeah. Let's question the brain. You know, why is my brain different to the guy that invented Amazon, for goodness sake? It's no different. It's yeah. just that I think he had less fear. And so, so much of the stuff that holds us back is the just the bullshit stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Like, as you say, yeah. this, this idea that you, you're somehow lesser or somehow different to someone, to like someone that you view as successful. So as you mentioned, like going into that, the hall full of masons whereby they're these individuals who are living large they're living this life that you somehow have told yourself that you're not worthy of but you're exactly the same as them like it just doesn't make any sense but like, how did you what was that realization like for you in terms of like when you're exposed to these individuals was there a like was there a specific moment where it was like hang on like these people are the same as me well, what you have to remember is when I, when I was uh, when I was at uh, primary school, uh, secondary school, uh, people used to pick me up. They used to go, hey, my dad's taking us to play football. Uh, we'll pick you up from the house. I go, oh, yeah, I live at such and such an address. So what I used to do is tell them I live like a mile away at the poshest estates. I used to get out an hour before. I used to walk or run to the, to the place. And even in the rain, I'd stand outside that house waiting for him to pick me up. So I already that, had that divide against what I, what I thought I wanted and what I really was. So I remember going to a, going to the Freemasons for the first time, and they, they, they blackball you and whiteball you and stuff. I'm not going to get into it too much. I still respect what they do and the secrecy around that. But I actually got in, and one of the reasons why I got in is because I played the keyboard, I played the organ, and for the last year, this lodge did not have an organist. 
Mm. So you're supposed to start at certain phases. I was pushed straight into the organist position, which is a pretty high position. And I'm thinking, wow, just from the skills I have that other people don't have, look at the way people treat me. So I remember after that, when I first got like some big paychecks, I bought my first Porsche and people treated me different. Then I started to wear, and, and it was all, this is all exterior things. It's not me. This is how I think other people treat me. Then I bought the Rolex, of course, and people started treating me different. Then I started bodybuilding and I was like this crazy physique um, that was winning titles in England. And yet the inside of me was still scared and, and ashamed of who I was. And, but there's the realization when I saw these guys would, would come up to me and go, oh, I mean, literally big, big names in the police force and the industry would come and go, brother Rob, you're fantastic. Thank you for doing this. You're absolutely amazing. And with them guys that I thought I had nothing in common with was looking up to me, that's what changed everything for me. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd still be, nine, I think nine out of 10 people going back that I know of my friends in secondary school are dead because just after I left the estate to go down to, to Oxford, um, the, the drugs hit my, my estate and all my friends died of drug overdoses. And that would have been me with my brain. Hell, that would have been me. So I've pushed it from there on going, and, and, the, and the, the state of money of today is, I'm no, I'm no better than anybody else, but I'm definitely not worse than anybody else when I'm walking to the dealership to buy my new car every year. You know, I have a sense of pride that, you know, I can afford this and that the inside matches the outside today. Mm -hmm. So it's not driving these cars because look at me, look at me. I always park my car furthest away from everywhere I'm going so nobody sees me today because the inside matches the outside. But that's taken, what am I now, 59 uh, next month. It's taken 59 years for me to be where I am today. It's not mm -hmm. an overnight matter. And again, it will continue to be a daily, a daily effort for me. Yeah. Maintaining those routines, maintaining those positive behaviors to, to keep that, to keep everything in alignment. So I, one thing that I've, I've written about, one some of the content that I put out before is talking about like how you have an external world and an internal world. And there's everyone, when, when they're younger, looks at the external world so like you're, when you're a kid you look to your friends what are your friends doing what do your friends have what are they where are they going on holiday and then you compare yourself to them based on what they're doing so you're looking outside of yourself same thing happens all the way through school then it's you get through school it's like, okay which university are you going to like where does your university fit relative to your friends then you're at university is like, okay which halls are you staying and you in the expensive halls you're in the cheap halls and then what you graduate what classification degree did you get like all of these external that like um, levels of value all of these external indicators of value and then you go all the way through life up to a point whereby something at least for me at least I, um, something happens whereby you realize that you cannot keep gauging your value against an external indicator you have to flip that perspective and figure out what value you're bringing to the table as opposed to what value am I going to get from this thing and for me, it was about of particularly extreme depression. I was suicidal. I came very, very close to, to following through on some relatively detailed plans. I mean, detailed plans is a good indicator as to how close someone is to actually doing it. And I had a little notebook with a pretty detailed plan going on. Um, yeah. And in the same as you, when you kind of, you grab the bottle and you feel that sense of relief, I did something that had that similar sort of effect where all of a sudden it's like, 
well, hang on, what's what's going on here? And then you start looking internally, you start trying to understand what's going on in your brain, you try to feel what's going on in your body. And I think that switch for me, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm maintaining and I'm going to hold the internal perspective versus the external validation all the time, but making that switch has been one of the most profound things for me. And not everyone gets to experience it. Not everyone gets to experience that shift or bring those two things into alignment. So, I mean, when you're working with addicts and when you're working with individuals who are depressed, what is the biggest thing that they tend to struggle with? Is it something within that space whereby they're still looking outside themselves and they're not willing to look inside themselves? Is that something that comes up quite often? Yeah, definitely. There's a couple of things that are major factors. One is that, you know, that I was looking for external external, uh, compliments, external confirmation that they're okay on the internal. Uh, And the secondly, whatever there's alcoholism and addiction, there's always trauma. So we have to go back to the scene of the crime, and that's usually when you're a kid. But just going back to what you said about the mimicking thing, I mean, have you ever been with a, a new friend or something, and they, and they have a saying, and all of a sudden you start saying that saying? Like, I was hanging around this guy, and it's gay guy, and he used to say, shut up, you know? And then one day I'm in the thing, and I said, shut up. And my wife looked at me and went, wow. And I was like, oh, my God, yes, I'm mimicking him. And I didn't mean to. So... I always say to people, you know, if you're on 50 grand a year and you want to earn 60 grand a year, hang around the guys that earn 60 grand a year and so on and so forth, you know, because that internal dialogue or internal worth and everybody suffers. I remember being with uh, Robbie Williams, the singer from the UK, mm, and yeah. I went on tour with him and uh, he's, a, he's such a great guy. But I'm, 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 we're sat in, uh, I think it might have been the, the, I don't know, London Arena or something. And he has this thing where he goes underneath and he, and he gets rocketed onto the stage with this like elevated square piece. And we're downstairs and it's like five minutes, Robbie, and we're there. And he's crying with nerves. I mean, the guy is going to pieces like, what if you don't like me? What if I do? There's like a hundred thousand people there screaming his name. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, give him enough confidence to go on stage. And it's just, it's crazy. You know, when you're looking at this situation going, oh my God, how powerful is that internal dialogue? And how powerful is the self-sabotaging brain? And of course, when he rockets onto that stage, the, the persona takes on and off he goes, but it's the pre-thought pattern of the brain that's telling him after all he's achieved, the biggest male artist in the UK ever, that he's not good enough. And that was for me to go, oh my God, you know, what? how damaged are we? Because when I did, I did four suicides. I died twice on the streets where it actually worked. It brought me back to life. Uh, I, I first started with thoughts, but hey, I did. I was slit my wrist one, one, one night in, in a friend's apartment, and, and he, he heard the, the blood spatter against the, the ceiling, and he came running in and saved me. And it's all stuff like that. It's like the Brit will say, I've had enough. I'm checking out. I mean, my wife, my wife's brother is a prime example of how the brain works and how it will fool yourself and other people. And she's at a family gathering with a brother who's an alcoholic who's doing well. He has plans for the week after. He's got a new job he's starting. He's made plans for him and his wife and his, and his baby to go to Spain, you know, two months out. He's got all this great stuff and he, and he left and they give her a kiss and he goes home and an hour later he's shot himself in the head. I mean, that's the brain, you know. That's how self-sabotaging and damaging that the brain can be. And, and it's just about recognition is nine-tenths of the law. 
if you know when you're going downhill in the mental health capacity, whether it be depression or whatever it may be, the body will start to tell us there's something wrong. And one of the main things, I'm a NLP practitioner, I'm also a somatic experience practitioner, and somatic experience, you have to feel your body. So the easiest one to explain to people is the gut feeling. Now, people think it's a joke. Oh, what's your gut feeling? Well, do you know what that actually means? Well, no, it's like, what are you going to go for? Are you going to go for salad or meat? It's like, it goes back to the tribal days, guys. When one of the, or two, or how many, I would have that gut feeling that something around you was in danger. And we wake the rest of the tribal, and they would be ready for war, or move, or whatever it may be. The same thing happens today, but we've stopped noticing it. It's like, when you do something wrong, we know we've done something wrong. We get that feeling in our stomach that it's not right. And we have, to, we have to look at that. And before every depression episode, every suicide episode, every self-sabotaging alcohol or drug that I take is preempted the week or a month before with that gut feeling that goes, something's about to go wrong. And it's, it's noticing that. My, my, my daughter who's a coach. She, she works on mental health because she suffered from mental health, especially abandonment when I, when I went on the streets and left them all. Um, so, yeah, she often talks about you know, listening to your body. And therefore, what we put in our body is really important. Like if you, I don't know whether you, Ben, you look as if you're in shape and everything, but if you go out and have a load of crap one day, oh. chocolate ice cream, the next day you feel sluggish and terrible. Yeah. You know, we can't feel our body properly. We can't listen to what it's telling us. Yeah, as you say, I think we we spend so much time in our heads now i mean thanks to these wonderful ubiquitous devices we spend so much time fixated on things in our head like chasing that amusement like looking through instagram liking a photo seeing something else keeping it going that we forget what it's like to actually get out of your head and into your body but then when we do we don't recognize what the feelings are so as you say like with the gut feeling we don't know what a gut feeling is we don't know what it's useful we don't know why it's there you're yeah. feeling tense at work so everything is like jacked up there so you think oh like I've, everything hurts i'll take some painkillers you're dealing with some uncomfortable emotions but you've never observed where you feel those emotions i as you say like the, the body stores trauma the body will tell you what is wrong but you need to know how to listen we don't know how to listen no we don't and we don't if you haven't uh, seen an animal especially a deer or something it gets hit by a car or stumbles or something. The first thing you do is it gets up and it shakes itself off like shakes crazy. That's getting the fear out of the body. That's getting the tension out of the body. Humans don't do that. Humans will store that tension and store that fear. Yeah, and sooner or later it's going to break. We can only hold on for it uh, for so much. And then what happens is little Johnny has a nervous breakdown and everyone goes, "Oh my God, I didn't see that coming." But if you look in his background, it was as plain as the nose on your face. You know, he's from an abusive family. He got sexually abused when he was a kid. His dad was an alcoholic. He got beaten often. And his relationships since then have been broken. Every single relationship he's got has been broken because his behavior comes straight from his parents. So unless you break that habit, what else do you expect? And that's why mental health has taken off our families. In my generation, our mom and dads dropped the ball when it comes to parenting. And I believe it had a lot to do with the Second World War. You know, but dads were like, not friendly and warm or I love you. They, they were brought up to, to, to jump and fight and, and, and just, you know, struggle and, you know, stuff like this. I mean, food on the table was their main object. It's like it, things are different today. 
and it was back then, but they dropped the ball completely, and therefore that's why there's a lot of mental health around with people in 30s, 40s, and 50s at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's no wonder we've got mental health problems because it all passes on. If you go, don't go back to the scene of the crime and clear that stuff up. There's the, I love what you said there, the body stores the trauma it does. It's a great book out there because the body keeps count. Mm, and uh, it's the same thing, the trauma that we hold on to, yeah, and the trauma that we hold on to will definitely destroy us. Put a self-sabotaging brain on top of it as an alcoholic and addict, and you don't stand a chance. Yeah. You don't stand a chance. I often say to people, I never stood a chance looking at my background. But I, I was always, I was taught to lie at an early age. Mom was, you know, and walking around shopping somewhere, a double glazing salesman would grab her and she'd give the wrong address. She'd give the posh address. And then she'd go over and she'd tell everybody in the house, if somebody calls this number, you know, this is where we live. Don't say we live here. You know, and so I was taught to live. That's a lie at an early age. And that's what I did. I never told them. I was very embarrassed about where we live. And we lived on a nice council estate. It wasn't none of the cars in the drive and all that and, and caravans and, you know, engines on the lawn. Like some of them, we, we people took pride where we lived and yet still I had that. I didn't, I didn't want my life like that. I don't know what it was. I still can't figure that out. Mm, no, it's a difficult one, I think. I mean, childhood and your parents and the way that you're the way that you're brought up have such a profound impact, and they have an impact at an age where you're not able to rationally understand the impact as it is happening. Like when you're when you're an adult, something happens to you. You've got the the experience and you've got the prefrontal cortex development to be able to see what's happened think about what's happened and then process it accordingly as to with, with varying degrees of success i mean obviously there are some events that are still incredibly traumatic that don't that can't be processed in quite the same way but when you're a kid you don't have that capacity and you are shaped by those stimuli so much definitely and then the prefrontal cortex is a very interesting part of the brain uh, the way we put it is the prefrontal cortex job is to come up with a solution as fast as possible. And it does a great job of that. Yep. The only problem is if you have a self-sabotaging brain, it doesn't have to be the right answer. So my answer to any problem, the quicker anything, my brain will go suicide mm-hmm. or drink alcohol. Whereas a normal person might rationally think about that for a second and go, well, let me think about that. Because not normally in a normal functioning brain, the prefrontal cortex will come up with the right answer then the gut feeling will tell you it's right or wrong. With my brain, it, it goes straight to the comfort blanket every time. Yeah. It's like, I don't want to be here. What's my solution to this problem? My solution to this abandonment? My solution to this shame? Alcohol. Every single time. And it's hard to change that. And what happens is, you know, going back to the hypothalamus at the back of the brain, just near the prehistoric brain, the hypothalamus, for those people who don't know, is my fight or flight part of the brain. So uh, it, it will secrete when we're in danger. Or, or when we, it will secrete what we need to do on a daily basis to survive, fight or flight. So in the normal brain, the, the secretion into the brain tells the brain to drink water and eat food. That's the basic fundamental uh, job of, of the hypothalamus. And that's what people do with the self-sabotaging addictive brain when it kicks off and starts getting in that state from fear, trauma or shock, my the hypothalamus will secrete into the brain to drink alcohol. And that's why alcohol, and this is a not a well-known fact, this is why alcoholics can go days and weeks without eating or drinking because the brain's not telling them to do that, to survive. The brain's telling me to drink alcohol. And I went down to about, I don't know, 12 stone 
And I, you know, I'm a big guy, but on the streets went down to twelve because I wasn't eating because my brain wasn't telling me to eat. It was telling me to drink more alcohol. And I'm the type of guy where I steal a bottle of vodka from the shop and I open the cap and start taking my second or third mouthful. I'm already scheming how I can get the next bottle. And that's what people don't understand about my, my brain and, and, and millions of people like me is it doesn't act like normal people. You know, I, I see people in bars all the time and they take a sip of wine and he takes a, a, a sip of the beer and they talk and like, I'm like, what? That's alcohol abuse. Drink the thing, will you? A, a sip in a mouthful at a time. He's like, I can't do that. You know, I have the addictive brain. If I'm going to a, a, a chip shop or, or I'm going to a, a sandwich shop, uh, a portion of chips, no, give me pudding chips, put some gravy on, give me two scallops, or give me three barm cakes. There's old stuff added on because I have the addictive brain. I'm addicted to anything. I will grab as much as I can of everything I can at any one time. I'm going to buy a car, you know, well, this, this model's available. Have you got a better model than that? Well, there's a special order. Oh, I'll have that special order. I like that. Get me that special order for another 30 grand. It's crazy. And unless, unless you have to keep track of that and realize that normal people don't think the way I think. And normal people don't think the way people with mental health think. And it's all about thought patterns. And it's all about chemicals in the brain. And that's why sometimes we need medication to, to, to flatten out them chemicals because sometimes my brain is, is, is not wired properly. That's mm -hmm. the only way I can put it to, to blame people out there. And it will think differently to other people out there mm -hmm. with only one end result that yeah. it wants to kill yeah. Yeah, and self-sabotage manifested as its at its ultimate, isn't it? Suiciding. Neurotransmitters and the impact that what well, diet, exercise, feeding, whatever you're eating, all of these things are having a, a subtle impact on your hormones, on your neurotransmitter levels, and then ultimately your perspective, ultimately your perception on reality. And if you're throwing in negative thought patterns into into a suboptimal biochemical environment then it's going to have a huge impact it's going to have a huge huge effect um and none of it is going to be positive very rarely positive positive things happen in my life because i make them happen they don't happen by me being me nature just going hey but what's very important for me as well is, is uh we're communication animals my, my professor when i was at college uh, sent me to the zoo for a year he paid for me to go to the zoo and study chimpanzees and apes for a year. And, and that's what I did. Every day I'd go down and watch these, these, these animals and the way they communicated and the way they would mimic each other. And, you know, it, it even comes back to sales technique, techniques. If you want to get a sale off anybody, I want to be the friend of some, just mimic what they do at the bar. If they order a glass of wine, order wine. If they cross the legs, cross the legs. You simply become best friends with them, I'm telling you. Because these are the things the brain takes in as mirroring oneself. Because that's all we're after. If you look at many couples that are actually making it and really happy together, they almost look like each other. Just notice that next time you go out, have a look. It's uncanny when you start noticing, you know, these things that we do. And again, knowledge is ten, nine tenths of the law here with, with mental health. Is the more you know, the more you can keep yourself safe. Mm -hmm. So your, um, your, your second PhD was in behavioral science. Yes. Um, in terms of how that feeds into um, the the treatment of addiction, like what are, you mentioned that things like alcoholism and drug abuse and that, then they're manifestations of an underlying problem. So, from a behavioral stand, science standpoint, what are those? What are those issues? Almost trauma. 
So I know I know plenty of people with the addictive brain that could be easy alcoholics, but they never touched alcohol. Yeah. So th these are the guys like who are running big dot uh, com companies right now. They have the addictive brain. They, they they see things differently to other people, and they've never touched alcohol. So what happens is uh, with the trauma in my past, the abandonment, the shame of where we live, uh, the fear, you know, everyday fear of are we going to eat today kind of thing. Um, Will, will be stored in my, in my being. The trauma is stored. And what happens is I can't get away from that on a daily basis. So it's all stored up. And then what happens is I take the first drug or drink and all of that is taken away from me. It's like, a, it's like a big breath. And for the first time, I can think straight and I can act without fear. And that's what we grab hold on every time. And most drug people tell you, all addicts will tell you, but most drug people will tell you that they've been chasing the feeling of that first high all their life. And it's the same with alcohol. I've been chasing that, that feeling that that gave me just before I went on stage at the age of nine, that half a beer that my uncle bought me. I've been chasing that. I was chasing that uh, feeling for the next 30 years and I never got it. But I did get that comfort and, and slowly but surely, the, the, what happens is with my body, it becomes dependent upon alcohol. I need alcohol 24 hours a day towards the end. And of course, the body can't take that. So, you know, here comes the trips to hospitals, sanitariums, loss of jobs, wives, car, kids, houses, all that stuff until we become homeless. And I still didn't think I had a huge problem when I was homeless. I just thought I was going through some bad luck. And then after about a year on the streets, um, I dropped down to my hands and knees and I was sobbing from my I never forget this. It was about 2.30 in the morning-ish. It was pouring down. I had no training shoes on. Someone had stolen my shoes because I was unconscious the night before. And I was sobbing from my belly. Now, here's the great thing. I wasn't sobbing because I lost my wife and kids or money. I was sobbing because the first time in my life I realized I could stop drinking. Because that's how much of a hold after my traumatic life it had on me to get me out of me. And it had taken me to the depths of insanity. And the gates of hell is where I was. And if it wasn't from that two or three minutes uh, of me doing that, I would definitely be dead by now. I should be dead 10 times, 100 times over. You know, the stuff I've done and, and the way I've treated my body. And I remember laying in the hospital one day and the doctor, I'm a homeless, so I'm in the hospital. You know, I'm getting some morphine or whatever because I've got chest pains that don't exist, but I'm drinking heavily. And the doctor leaned over to me, he's about two inches from my face, and he said, look, here's the deal. If you ever drink alcohol again, your body is that damage. You will not make it here in the ambulance. And I'm making myself clear. While he's doing this, I'm looking over his shoulder at the clock going, if I get out in the next 30 minutes, I can get to the liquor store, steal some more vodka. How insane is that? But that's, that's the hypothalamus telling me to drink. That's all, it's, that's all I'm bothered about. And, and the more, like the book was very therapeutic for me because... That took about two years to write because I, you know, poor Janet, she's my wife, I'd write things on pieces of paper and they come up and they still come up now. As me and you were talking for the last hour, stuff has come up in my brain that I've not processed for 30 years. Mm. And it's just come up now that I need to process once I get off because that stuff is dangerous. I have to shake it off straight away to carry on with my life. Otherwise, and again, going back to that amazing line, you said the body will keep count, the body will store that stuff up. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah, what you said there about like processing stuff as it comes up, like, that's something that is 
not spoken about in the like you come up with something you come up against something uncomfortable you you feel this this negativity rising and everyone's immediate thought is to not process it i don't want to feel that i don't want to do it so i'm not going to do anything with it and i'm going to try and ignore it i'm not going to try and shake it i'm not going to try and get rid of it in a positive way i'm going to ignore it and hope it goes away by itself yes and invariably it doesn't it just sits there so yeah how many times have you heard family say we squeak on the carpet yeah. We don't talk about things in here. That's the stuff that's going to kill me. Yeah. I, you know, every single time. You know, we, we had a, we, somebody sued me. I wanted to be sued once. And it, it, was a, it, wasn't, it was a trumped up thing that because his daughter drank again or something, he was coming after his, his money. It was like $10,000. And there was, my attorney said, it's laughable. Just tell him you'll take it to court, let him go through all the court things. And in about a year's time, we'll get to court and you'll win. And it'll just be, I just waste time. I called a guy up and said, okay, how much do you want? And he went, we're after $10,000. I said, okay, I'll write you a check right now. And he's like, what? A check right now. And I put the phone down. My attorney, my assistant, walked in and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm not living with that shit on my mind for the next 12 months. I'm not doing it. That'll do, that's the stuff that destroys people like me. Yeah. Just write me a check. Yeah, but Ray was wrong. It doesn't make any difference. The actual language of other people, fancied or real, has the actual potential to kill me. And I've got to be careful about that. Even if I'm in the right, it makes no difference today. I still have to back down and go, okay, you want 10 grand? All right, you take 10 grand check right now. I'll be here this afternoon for you. Get rid of it. Shake it off. Don't live with that stuff. Because like you said, all the stuff that we live with is shirk off and sweep under the carpet. The body's keeping count of all that. And sooner or later, I think of it like a computer screen. I put everything in a zip file. Sooner or later, someone's going to click on that zip file. Mm. And when it all starts coming out, it's too much to handle. You can't do it all. You do it piece by piece. If I'd have deleted that and saw it out before I put it in the zip file, it'd be okay. But I didn't. I put it in the zip file. I'm going to deal with it another day. Don't worry about it. Sweep on the carpet. Bang. Whoosh. Oh, come on. There comes a suicide. There comes a relapse. You know, and all that stuff. I think it's, uh, it's, it's pretty simple once you know what you're doing with it. Yeah. But it's still an untalked about subject. And that, that is, uh, that's the problem. It's nobody's talking about it. And when they do talk about it, they're using language from the 30s and 40s and 50s. Yeah. You know, we need to get up today. We need to start talking when it's about this is a curable illness if you know how to how to go about it. But it's a daily stuff we need to do. You know, it's a curable mental illness as in depression. I think you can cure You can't cure alcoholism. It's a hereditary disease that you can keep on hold one day at a time. I like the idea of one day at a time. And that's how I live my life today. What am I going to do? What can I cram in today that I won't be able to cram in any other day in case anything happens tonight? And tomorrow, I have no idea. The only thing my wife said to me when I come upstairs to the office today is you've got a busy day tomorrow. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Yeah. Busy days are good for me. Mm. Keep you out of your head. Keep the routine going. So yes. one of the, um, obviously one of the purposes of this podcast is if you are like, I'm seeking to broaden the dialogue, as it were. Um, as you said, like talking about these things is one of the, one of the most important things that you can do. And then through talking, you can help foster a, a wider breadth of understanding with individuals who maybe don't have personal experience of depression per se, but they will resonate with the stories that yourself and other guests that I've had have told. And like the, the one, because we're bumping up against the hour now, um, the one final question that I like to ask is, if there is someone who is listening to, listening to this interview now, listening to this chat, and they are in 
the grips of a particularly difficult episode. So it could be maybe they're struggling with an addiction, maybe they're struggling with depression, maybe they're dealing with crippling anxiety or whatever. What would be the one thing that you could recommend that they do right now that would then help them move forward through that? Talk to somebody. That's it. I know it's an old cliche and you saying, but you, you, your mind is not telling the things that you need to hear. Call a friend up. Don't have to be a professional. Call a friend up and, and just be honest with them, a close friend, and just say, hey, I'm not having a good day today and start talking to them. I bet you a million dollars that once you speak to them and you put the phone down, no matter what's been said, you feel a lot better. And it's suicide tendencies. Get help. Once again, voice it to somebody. Call the Samaritans or call me up. Just Google me. Anything you want to do, just get out of yourself because isolation is our number one offender when it comes to suicide. So get out of yourself and do something good for somebody today. Call a friend you've not heard and go, hey, just call me and see how you're doing. Man, I'm telling you now, because no matter how low you are, how suicidal you are, if you can do that one thing, you will feel better. And you've got another notch on your belt with information about, about self-harm. Because you know quite well, once you start speaking to somebody, remember, guys, if you say thank you to somebody, dopamine, we love dopamine. Dopamine makes us feel great. You know, get some dopamine flowing around your head. Get out yourself, get into somebody else as quick as possible. That, my friends, will sort you out. Awesome. That is, I think, the uh, perfect place to finish this up. This has been fantastic, does Rob. I've really enjoyed this. Loads of useful information. It's been also fantastic to be able to connect with another Brett because I don't get to do this very often. So, much appreciated there. It's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, I, I, we're going to stay friends after this, I'm telling you, because I just love, I love what you're doing. I love the way you do it. I love that, you know, that you get me and vice versa. And uh, I love that you, you, you're, taking, you're taking a part in this mental health and doing something about it. You know, I mean, last night, at last night, we got it sorted out now. It's 7 o'clock in the morning, you'll be over. Like, so excited. I can't wait to meet Ben. And you've been everything that I thought would be. So thank you for being you, Ben. You're awesome. Much appreciated. Very much appreciated indeed. Thank you for your, for your kind words. If anyone was looking to reach out to you, where would be the best place for them to connect with you? Where would they best well, be? My, my name's spelled a bit different. It's R-O-B-B, uh, Rob Kelly. Uh, just Google me. There's also robkelly.com, R-O-B-B-K-E-L-L-Y.com. Phone number's on there. Uh, email's on there. Facebook, Dr. Rob Kelly. Uh, but like I say, the best thing is Google my name, either Dr. Rob Kelly or Rob Kelly, two Bs. And uh, you'll find me on Google. Contact me, call me. Uh, advice is free. Um, we do a lot of pro bono work, so don't be afraid to call. If you're feeling down, want a pet talk, believe me, guys, listen to me carefully. I'm your man. I will get you to a different place within 15, 20 seconds. Believe me, I'm good at this. Give me a 20-second call. I don't cost anybody anything. Look me up on WhatsApp. It'll be a free call even. I will get you to a different place within 20 seconds, I guarantee you. Awesome. That is the perfect place to finish. Thank you very much indeed, Rob. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for listening as well. My guest today is Dr. Rob Kelly, PhD. Rob is a world-renowned addiction expert who believes in treating the problem, not the symptoms. He has worked for many years helping addicts and alcoholics to recover their lives from the disease of addiction. Based on his own experiences working with addicts and alcoholics over the last 20 years and combined with two PhDs in psychology and behavioral science and as a recovered alcoholic himself, he is a triple threat 